For January 22nd, 2024, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 812, Dependent Rock. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. Never happier than uh, when we are are hanging about uh, shooting the poop. <laughs> We're just talking about whatever is on our mind. Uh, scathing, satirical reviews of uh, of pop culture phenomena and i am uh, i am delighted that we have been doing it for uh, 16 years if you are listening to this podcast it comes out on monday january 22nd 2024 at midnight eastern time midnight 01 1201 eastern time if the uh, if the gods of the internet and and of the the cron jobs on our uh, on our VPS cooperate, uh, then, you know, you get this at 1201 on, uh, the 16th birthday of the overthinking it enterprise started on January 22nd, uh, 2008. So we, we are, our kid is all grown up, can, uh, drive a car now. Uh, it can try to buy cigarettes with a fake ID from the uh you know from the bodega on the corner it can uh i don't know sneak out the window shimmy down the drain pipe and uh uh go out to the go out to the the field with its friends to shoot bb guns at beer cans i don't know i i grew up in the city i don't know what you know what <laughs> what, what normal people do um but hey six, 16 years of overthinking it and and uh two stalwarts uh of of the enterprise are with me we have uh mr peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Happy 16th. Happy 16th, Matt. Man, this is really exciting. It's It's been uh, XVI, my dude. XVI. <laughs> XVI. And we got Sounds Mark like Lee. someone's been thinking about the Roman Empire recently. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Multiple times an hour, if not a day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's Mark Lee. Now, uh, our, our... Oh, before we move on, cow tipping, Matt. Cow tipping. People in real America went cow tipping. Is that it? Is that it? I mean, do you think you, you do you consider yourself having grown? I mean, Pete, Pete grew up in in um, New Jersey, which is one turnpike and nothing else. But the uh, you know, you, you I'm, I'm at, sorry. I grew up by the parkway, not the turnpike. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> There's the turnpike and the parkway and they're very different. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> well, and, and Mark, like what is your where do you come out on the kind of the urban rural divide when you consider your your upper? Are you a product of a city or like a product of of like the country or just like of, you know, country in the sense of it's used in country music? Um, solidly a suburban um, uh, ex- experience. Um, we would go into the urban core every once in a while for cultural events, um, mediocre minor league ice hockey, um, a symphony, which Birmingham had at the time, which it didn't by the time, uh, I think I was time to graduate from high school. Um, but, uh, the country was never far away. We would go, uh, into the sticks, uh, as we called it, uh, in the other direction of the highway to get to school. So I was right there in the bleeding edge of the liminal space between city and, um, and not city. That's amazing. Uh, well, that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, sort of interesting. And, and um, you know, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess here, here we are, 16, 16 years. I'm, I'm very pleased that, that it's come this far and that, that we're still doing it. It's, it's brought us great happiness. I, th- I think we've entertained some people. 
uh, opened some minds, perhaps, and uh, made made some friends, made some smart, funny friends along the way. So it's nice to have to, we disrupted media, Matt, along the way. Well, you know, I'm really sad to to report that our our sister publication, uh, Pitchfork, our sister website, <laughs> Pitchfork, which you know uh, had been acquired by Condé Nast uh, within the last several years. Um, was uh, is uh, being folded into what did they say that I mean they they're like firing everybody it's gone basically it's being folded uh, into GQ is how yes. they're gentlemen quarterly quarterly gentlemen is how is how it's 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 being described and you know especially with the TFT podcast like Pitchfork was a very important primary source as it were I guess not a primary well in in a way it was a primary source you can think of the albums as the primary source but like Pitchfork was that that rare kind of uh magazine maybe like Lester Bangs Cream like um you know a, a couple other writers you can think of where the the writing became uh a primary source like it became sort of an actor in the in the world rather than just a kind of a a, a chronicler of it uh, you know pitchfork with their their particular sensibility and their scientific decimal point rating system from 0.0 to 10.0 where you got uh you know you got a a um uh you got a rating that was accurate to the 10th place what is is that too just to be clear Matt just to be clear Matt this is germane to a broader discussion you did call it a magazine but it did launch uh, online. It was a digital name. Yeah, it was a blog. It was a it was, it a, was blog. A, di- a blog. It start well. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it had a blog. It was a publication that had a blog. I mean, in what sense are reviews blogs? I you know I don't know that the the um exactly what a blog is is uh you know is interesting. And anyway, so that like they they're being uh you know it's they're being shuttered as an independent enterprise and and redundancies eliminated within the great uh Condé Nast Death Star uh, that occupies the the big building at One World Trade Center. And um yeah and and uh, a lot of a lot of the leadership is gone and you know I don't know if they'll continue to to produce the website or not or just you know make it or how how the name how the brand uh pitchfork will will uh continue but we have no greater fan of uh indie rock at our website than mr pete fenzel who is an enormous devotee what of what of, of indie rock and and pete wanted to do a podcast that was all about indie rock you know, and oh, his, yeah. which, which, you know, as you know, is all one thing and, uh, that, that Pete has, has definite, definite feelings about. So Pete, why, why don't you kick us off with, uh, this podcast about indie rock, which is about indie rock and your feelings about indie rock. Sorry, Matt, I think you misheard me. I'm the podcast's biggest fan of dependent rock, which is rock, which is rock that emerges as a contingency from some previous actor that also exists in a context. So it's really it's it's really about it's a bit when you're thinking about a rock dependency, you're really thinking you're not, not necessarily thinking about sort of an ongoing relationship, but but perhaps one that has a sort of first mover or watchmaker relationship where, you know, some sort of great hand, you know, causes Justin Timberlake to move into motion with the laws that govern Justin Timberlake already set. And then he sort of proceeds ballistically through the rest of his career. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I guess um, if we wanted to talk about dependent rock, well, I mean, dad rock is 
claiming dependent rock, right? So that's sort of similar. <laughs> so I suppose that's sort of the state of my dependency now is that I'm rounding up the W-2s and trying to see how much rock I can claim uh, from, uh, fr- from, from, the, uh, from, the, from the machine against which I not so much rage – uh, as much as file paperwork, but no, um, I mean, I was bothered by the, sh- the, I don't want to call it the shuttering of Pitchfork because who knows, you know, it might end up being a column that's inside of GQ that has a totally different vibe, totally different meaning. Who knows what's going to happen? Obviously it's, you know, it is definitely whatever it was is ending and it's going to be something else. Uh, but I was also really bothered by the similar thing that happened to sports illustrated. Um, I was a big reader of Sports Illustrated when uh, I was younger. Sports Illustrated for kids, and then Sports Illustrated after that. And then after that, Sports Illustrated for, like, am I an adult now? I'm not sure because I don't feel like an adult, but I have to do adult things. And then Sports Illustrated for, like, I am an adult because I feel that sort of looming ennui of adulthood. But, like, where did my Sports Illustrated go for the sort of interceding time? Like, it's hard to find the Sports Illustrated where you're like, okay – now I'm no longer a Sports Illustrated for kids, and now I'm a Sports Illustrated for sort of a fully realized individual. And then you sort of realize that that's really a transcendental Sports Illustrated that that doesn't really exist, you know, qua exist so much as it is alluded to by other Sports Illustrated's that you read. Um, I mean, what I'm really saying <laughs> is that uh, the the default state of being is Lynn Sanity, uh, and that uh, all other states <laughs> of being emerge from Lynn Sanity as such. You see, Pete, uh, this, this, I'm I'm uh, like I'm I'm. Uh, not a fan of Sports Illustrated. I'm really a fan of Sports Described. You oh know? yeah, Sports yep. Sports Narrated. Yes. I guess is more accurate yes. to say, and and that's you know yes, the, well, uh, like Paradise by the Dashboard Light is a great example of sports narrated, <laughs> and a good example <laughs> of Phil Rizzuto, of, peace be upon him, yeah. of de- dependent rock as well. Indeed, you know? indeed, it covers all bases, um, so- like uh, like first base going to second base. <laughs> indeed, indeed, to third base. So when I think about this, really what my mind goes to is sense memory of physical objects and more than to auditory memory and cultural memory of indie rock, which, of course, I'm probably the least qualified indie rock person just because I'm not cool um, of, no, of the I mean, crew. Indie rock, indie rock is, you know, is a conspiracy to you know, alienate you and make you feel bad. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, I think that's been true for, I mean, am I, is this the first time I'm letting you in on that? Because all the rest of uh, everyone, the whole world, the other six, uh, six billion, nine hundred ninety-nine million, (laughs) et cetera, people in the, in the, the world have known that for a while. So, uh, surprise, happy, happy 16th. If we really, if we really wanted to talk about indie rock, I will say two things about it. One is that, I mean, I did, I used, I went to some great indie rock concerts. Ryan brought me to sort of induct me into some things. I, I went to a Lasavi Fav concert. That was awesome. I went to another couple concerts that were really good. So I don't think it's a bad experience, but there were really two things that played against me ever becoming an indie rock fan. Um, one of them is that like 80% of the music that I listened to for a very long time was at the gym. And and so, yeah, sure, you can listen to, you know, I did have a running mix that heavily featured Holland 1945 by Neutral Milk Hotel, and I would just sprint when that song would come on. I would just, like, sprint and cry. Uh, but, uh, but <laughs> yes, yes. But, <laughs> but, like, if you have that much of your music, like, I worked out a lot, and if you, that much of your music is working out music, then 
you know, it's just it's going to have a different center of gravity. Like it's going to be hard to really maintain uh, a, a real unless you're really the path dependency of it is important. Like, you really have to establish a real bulwark of indie indie rock preference <laughs> in order to like get on a stair climber, right? Like and be like that is my choice is to listen to indie rock. I mean, keep in mind, I watched a great deal of Deal or No Deal with subtitles while I was uh, working out at the gyms, you know, before work <laughs> every day. And like, you know, I don't think a lot of people. I don't think I don't think Deal or No Deal with subtitles would have gotten particularly many decimal points from pitchfork uh, uh peace be upon them i suppose uh but yeah but one is one is just like the instrumentality of the music yeah uh, which is also i think something that has to do with magazines and kind of specialization and and generalization and and uh pitchfork as newer media than than sports illustrated which is of course very generalist but then the other one is just a general inability to tolerate my own negative feelings matt <laughs> Right. Which, which like I only not, was able you're to not like, alone in that, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say, that. I don't want to say I've overcome it, but I've become aware of it and I've managed it and gotten better at it at due to like years and years and years of therapy. Um, but like, like a lot of people who were involved in comedy and theater, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of, uh, a lot of my emotional regulation was through overlaying other more powerful emotions on top of the ones that I was feeling. Right. It's just like, you know, Oh, you got you got some you got a you got damage to the drywall. Put some wallpaper up. You got damage to the wallpaper. Put on put on a coat of paint, right? Like epoxy that, right? Put up a uh, put up a fresco, right? Like, and you just have layers and layers and layers uh, above your real feelings before you get right down to it. And um, and I, I did oh God, that would at be some such, point, that would be such a great governing metaphor for an indie rock album, Pete. You know, that's just, <laughs> you see, like. I definitely had the conversation with my therapist about how about Morrissey at one point. It's like, why would you <laughs> listen to Morrissey? It just makes you feel bad. Why would you want to feel bad? And then she's like, ah, I understand this guy. Okay. Like, he doesn't want to feel bad because he feels bad a lot. <laughs> but anyway. Um, well, so, I, so, I, so I never took upon myself to subscribe to an indie rock magazine because I didn't have the desire to indie rock myself, indie rock my world, indie rock my life. So I guess this is my fault. I, uh, I had that, Pete that, on my on my running playlist. I continue to have proudly on my running playlist as, yeah. as a fan of of many you know uh, bands who are not particularly commercial or, or well known. Uh, I will say that uh, I on my running playlist have uh, the Spice Girls "Spice Up Your Life." And, right. uh, you know, when they say colors of the world, I shout spice up your life. And then yeah. they say every boy and every girl. And I say spice up your life. And they say people of the world spice up your life. And then they go, ah, yep. and I take that as a thing to increase my stride rate, you know, <laughs> so that I spend the whole uh, rest of the chorus slamming it to the left, shaking it to the right, uh, kicking yep. it to the front at a sprint. And I use that to yep. govern my intervals. <laughs> I use that yep. to, you know, make the, uh, make the, make the thing go. No, I've, I feel like I've taken us down a tran- tangent by gaslighting the audience about what the, uh, about what the, um, the podcast is about, but uh, the the loss of the loss of Pitchfork and uh, as a kind of an independent concern, and the loss of of Sports Illustrated, it's, it's kind of unclear what what happened there, uh, right? Like there was like an AI scandal with Sports Illustrated, something, and then and so now almost everyone, if not everyone, is being laid off. Um, Mark has pasted something into our into our back channel here that says National Geographic will end a newsstand 
publication. So like the the idea – Bills of, aren't concerned, but you cannot get the famous yellow border uh, thick magazine or I guess increasing – less so thin or in recent years. Uh, you can't get the, the yellow border magazine on the newsstand anymore. So I mean it's it's been clear that publishing is changing and these are just kind of, I mean the, the that is to say the the recent period has seen more tumult in publishing you know um than maybe any time that we remember in our lifetime and uh like or maybe larger tumult there's it's never been a particularly steady thing like publications start and stop all the time um the kind of the smaller and more independent they are the more volatile they are as people kind of create as groups and movements and whatever create little magazines and and stop publishing them the history of 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 the 20th century anyway is littered with that that kind of thing and uh some of them are very interesting and influential for the you know two issues that that get published and you know, get studied and written about for, for, uh, years and years. Some, some of them, uh, some of them continue. Like, um, I, th- I think maybe Kaya de Cinema is still published. I don't know. I'll Google that when I'm, when I'm done, but that was, you know, uh, one of those kind of started, started by movement, but like these, these things going and like going into, going into Condé Nast, like made, made us sort of stop and wonder and sort of think about, think about publications and think about, magazines magazines entered my life i guess in there were sort of two uh there were like two or three vectors one uh and this is difficult to remember now but like this was maybe the most important magazine or the one that i read the most as a child uh was tv guide and oh and not, you didn't even think you you didn't think I was going to go there, did you? Which had like um had some editorial in in like color pages uh at the front, you know, co- color pages that had the the feel of like um like a newspaper coupon circular, uh you know that get get stuffed in stuffed into newspapers like um and then the back was all all newsprint and just like day by day listings for the. Uh, for the particular week. And I, you know, I don't know. I looked at both and it was a sense that like you needed to keep up with this thing in order to kind of know what was going on. Like je- basically when was Star- was Star Trek The Next Generation new or a rerun that week was kind of like the main uh, topic of, you know, my my perusing the the TV guide. But then I got a little a little bit older into my teens and Wired magazine started publishing and I was a, you know, a nerdy kid already. I was a bookish kid already. And so like this seemed to be like, I don't know, this kind of like, this particular magazine, like talking about, um, uh, the culture of the internet or like the, the, the internet kind of continued from a, like a broadly humanistic point of view or like what we were then still unironic, unironically calling cyberspace. Um, and and it got that and that was a sort of large format publication with like really nice cardstock and they had like a um they had like a a list at the end of like all the typefaces that they used in the magazine and stuff like that it was it was clearly kind of designed to be a premium uh experience a premium product and i i don't think it was wired is published by conde now but i don't think it was at the time i think it was no uh, it was acquired by conde nast in 2006 oh there you go um, I think, yeah, I think it was run out of, out of, um, 
San Francisco for the the first couple of years. And so I I like I actually have I think like a, a complete volume one or volume two of Wired magazine like in a banker's oh, box wow. at, at cool. you know in in the garage in my mom's house like maybe like I should see if I can, <laughs> I can sell that on on eBay or something like that. And um again it was sort of a window it was kind of a window into a world. It was like even living on the bleeding edge the feeling that I had was that like I needed this to to stay current. You know, I needed to stay up to up to speed with with the world and that this this would be these dispatches would bring me um would bring me news of the world. Um why wired uh not surprisingly, created one of the first, maybe the first website for a publication where they they published separate editorial just for the, uh, just for the the website, and they had like correspondence from uh from around the world. Like I remember one was in uh, Johannesburg, South South Africa, which seemed so like far away and exotic, and like oh wow, the you know the world the world kind of got smaller, and so that that was like the 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 harbinger of things things to come. But um yeah that that was uh that was that. And then you know speaking speaking of Pitchfork, I uh, subscribed to Rolling Stone for a little while as a as a kid cuz you know I always liked music and I like I would read the reviews. I would see the albums that that were coming out. I made like I I made uh decisions to buy I think I bought a um uh what Jarvis Cocker Pulp. I think I bought This Is Hardcore by Pulp. Uh, on a- after reading a, a a pitchfork review of it, so yeah, man, it was like uh, I don't know, it was it 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 felt like a way into the secret knowledge of the world, or kind of a way into like knowing what's what's going on, uh, you know, and that that was like I don't know, that was important to me. Uh, Mark, you did you did you have like uh, early seminal magazine experiences for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned National Geographic before for a reason because my parents, I assume this is my dad, um, were was a faithful and avid subscriber and collector of National Geographic magazines. Crucially, um, he had bought um, the leather cases where you would stick half a year's worth of National Geographic at a time. And we had several rows of bookshelves dedicated to these going back. There's a full sets going back to like the late 70s. Wow. Like even my, my parents came to the United States like in the mid 70s. So somewhere earlier on, they decided like, uh, you know, this was the thing to do. Get to subscribe to National Geographic and keep all of them through the 80s and going into at least the mid 90s. I have no idea what happened to these. And like there's no realistic scenario would have would have preserved these but they just felt so important at the time this is kind of going off of what you're talking about matt right like um they they conveyed and particularly because the thickness of it right i believe uh, i'm pretty sure that wired magazine had like kind of a solid uh spine yeah to it, it did. Right? yeah it was perfect pound and um it, it conveyed um a sense of authoritativeness um of import Right. Like this is important knowledge that is coming to your world. And and I like, Matt, how you said, like, it felt like it made the world smaller. National Geographic, of course, had the opposite uh, effect on me that it felt it made the world larger. That like, you know, mm. again, I'm a, I'm a kid here and, you know, in uh, suburban Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and National Geographic is bringing to me um, uh, vivid color photographs of every corner of the world. Um, 
and well, those and those maps. You guys remember the maps, right? It would be a, a great map insert, and it would, it would fold it out. And uh, you know, a lot of those would just wind up on my wall because, like, it was a poster, right? That's um, cool. It was, it was a cool, cool poster to have. Um, but wait, you, obviously, you were, all these things are, are, are displaced. You were allowed, allowed to allowed deface to, to deface the National Geographic by ta- by it didn't have to mean stay in mint condition uh, for the for the collection. You could like you could like rip out the map and and tack it up on your wall. I think you didn't have to rip them out. Like they were they were designed to be you know taken out of the magazine and then like displayed somewhere. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, but, uh, like and talking about all these things, you know, obviously they're all displaced by the internet, right? And it made so much more convenient. Um, but. The uh, that that physical tactile sensation and like it, and and it comes like once a month and it's a package and someone else is telling you that these things are all important um, and are worth knowing about and and by the way have credibility too in terms of, of, of the the, um, the the messenger of them and the credentialization of, of those sorts of things um, like in this moment it is helpful to reflect back and think about how we've lost all of that. Like the magazine as a format has not entirely been obliterated, but almost entirely. Um, and I'm and I'm going back, you know, to, to you know the mid '90s and and looking at those row after row of, of yellow bound magazines, and I'm, um, I'm I'm feeling a certain sense of loss. Like, have we gained a lot? Yes, absolutely. Have we lost something? Yeah, that as well too. Pete, you got a, a magazine magazine associations? <clears throat> yeah, I feel like. I came upon magazines a little bit differently because I read them as a kid and I read them for myself. Uh, so I was a subscriber of, to Boys Life magazine. Did any of you guys ever read Boys Life magazine? Oh, yeah. 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 The Scout, Boy Scouts of America. Yeah, yeah. It's the official magazine. magazine. Right? I think it's now called Scout Life. They decided that they were just going to like <laughs> make it like a little less weird because uh, it's a, you know, it, like it's a magazine from, you know, 1910 or something. And, you know, the name didn't necessarily permanently stick around, stuck around for a long time. Uh, but I, I read Boys Life magazine. As I mentioned, I read Sports Illustrated for Kids. I, of course, read Nintendo Power. Uh, I, I got the second. I started at the second issue of Nintendo Power, though somehow they had me on their records as being from the first issue. So I got the special commemorative pin you got, yes. like four or five years in, whenever that was, for subscribing from the beginning, whenever, whenever that was. Um, but I was just looking at old covers of Boys Life magazine and uh, uh, from like the mid '90s, early early '90s, which was about probably when I was reading it the most, and it's like. A lot of them are, are sports figures at that point, but like not all of them. And a lot of them are weird, random sports. So that's like, um, oh, yeah. OK, so there's one. I'm just looking through like 91. It's like Bigfoot, the Blue Angels, uh, Phil Mickelson, a bobsledder, uh, Blackstone, the magician is on the cover. Uh, I think you have to go a couple more, a couple more years over. And there's just an episode that's like the first Americans where the cover is just three random native American people painted. And so then, and then the next one is, is uh, scuba diving and then dinosaurs. Right. And so like, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to, endorse boys life in any stretch of the imagination i don't remember it that well uh i I do remember their anti-drug uh this is before the anti-drug uh phrasing came about but did either of you guys read the boys life magazine about drugs and drug addiction no there's a there was a very it had the a very memorable centerfold which was a like uh 
a big and I can't find the the issue. Courtney of, Love. It was Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> where it was like it was like a it was like an anatomical illustration of the human body where it pointed out every bad thing that every drug did to every organ in your body. Uh, and it was like, you know, these are these blood vessels were burst. These these cells will die. This is your liver. This is your kidneys. Right. Like this is, you know, all this is your esophagus is going to get worn away when you drink too much alcohol. I mean, it did. It wasn't just about drugs, it was about booze, too. Um, and there was just something about that. You know, it's a haunting. It, it looked like the people from Mars attacks with like the full on eyeballs just sticking out. Um, and uh, and that stuck with me. But it was more like. As I mentioned, it was generalist. You know, you would there's of course always the part in the back where you could make a hovercraft out of a vacuum cleaner if you sent somebody a, a bunch of money and a self-addressed stamped envelope or something. But uh like they had those weird classified ads in the back. But um but it would be on a variety of different subjects, you know, and obviously they were selected for a particular purpose. Uh, you know, for for people that were in the Boy Scouts or in some of the other things. I actually just in doing some background for this, realized, which is something I'd never known, which was that there were apparently two different versions of Boys Life magazine that were sent to younger kids and older kids, and you didn't – I was never aware I was getting the younger one. It's the same cover. They would put different things in the middle uh, to, if you were like 11 to 18 or like under 11, um, which I thought was kind of interesting and the kind of thing that you wouldn't, wouldn't knew. And I guess what that speaks to is curation. Right. It speaks to like someone else is taking the responsibility to put together this magazine that you're going to read. And this magazine has a particular role in your life. Like for me, you know, Boy's Life, I would be reading, you know, picture me sitting with a little book light on the bottom bunk of my bunk bed. Um, probably this is after my sister left to go back to her own room. So I was probably alone in the room. But like, you know, picture me like it's late and I've got a, you know, a flashlight or a book light on or a desk lamp. And I'm reading like about, you know. Uh, whether it's like, I'm not going to say climate change, but like, you know, ocean currents or hockey, you know, or roller coasters, um, whatever it is that this person is, these people have decided to put in this magazine. Um, and then with Sports Illustrated and Sports Illustrated for kids, it's whatever sport they want to talk about. Um, and as you get older, I still like magazines a lot. Like I, I try to get magazines when I fly on airplanes. Uh, it's my sort of tradition. Um, was I would like to buy? I like to buy for a long time. I would buy an issue of Scientific American and then some other random magazine whenever I got on a train or airplane that was like longer than a couple of hours. Mm. Um, and and because I would want to read about random stuff, like what did they put in this magazine? You know, like what did, what did somebody think was important enough to put in here? Not what did somebody think I wanted to read about? Right? Like because they don't know me. Uh, what did they think that if they put in this magazine, somebody would want to read about it? And then, you know, I read a lot of men's health and men's health is sort of like that, but was lame. I don't even know if that's is still around. I'm sure it's somewhere. But it was like it was very clearly like, here's how here's a workout routine you could do, which is totally infeasible because like the workout routine is going to take you like six months and you get a new issue of this magazine, you know, every month. <laughs> so, like, you're going to switch it up every month? I, I don't need a new way to do step-ups on my couch, right? Like, like three weeks after I just started doing it a different way. But then there were, there were also lots of stories about being middle-aged and scared of dying of a heart attack, which, when I was in my 20s, were particularly interesting and now would probably be far too scary. Um, but I guess that's probably why you would read it, because it would be, like, a thrill. Um, no, the, you don't like feeling bad. That's the, you know, that's, that's what well, that's, I really that's take that away we, we talked about this. We talked about this. Yeah, I, and I'm looking for for that. I mean, even like with phones, 
one of the things I just want to comment on is I don't really – in certain ways, it's not that different. In certain ways, it's very different. But in certain ways, it's not that different because, you know, where was I reading it? I was reading the magazines the same places that I would be looking at my phone, you know, like in my bed, on the toilet, on the train, in an airplane, like whenever I'm sort of like bored and want to reach for something, you know, I would have this sort of thing handy. One of my most vivid memories of a magazine was when I was attacked – one of the couple of times, there have been a few times I've been jumped as an adult. I've been assaulted uh, by randos, and uh, and I was I was jumped on the train. You guys remember this, right? I was jumped on the train by a person who was very unwell and and inebriated, uh, and he no, attempted to, to kick me in the face. Oh yeah, it was right. it was pretty scary. Um, this is in I, New York, I assume, right? Or, or in Boston? No, this was in Boston. Oh, okay. Um, I was attacked. I've been attacked in Boston. I've been attacked in Baltimore. I've been robbed in Boston and hit, but never. Um, never like seriously injured. And then I was never attacked in New York. Um, but it's also just from riding nonstop public transit for so many years. Like I just got, you know, buses and trains and stuff. Eventually the, the dice don't come up your way. But, um, but yeah, no, this was a guy who was yelling to everybody that, you know, oh, he, he's spouting homophobic things. And he kept telling people that he was going to kick people. Uh, and, he, and he started yelling at me, like, I'm going to kick you in the face. I'm going to kick you in the face. And I remember that I just sort of sat there. I hadn't done any, nothing to antagonize this guy. I'm pretty convinced that he came up to me because I was big enough that he sort of like it was less committal to attack me because he didn't have to worry about actually hurting me. Like if he attacked someone who was smaller, then he could actually really hurt them. But I think this guy just wanted trouble. Uh, that was my the vibe that I picked up. And I remember I was holding a copy of The Economist, and I, like, and I, <laughs> and I like rolled up my copy of The Economist into like a little roll, and I just sort of sat on the train, like looking straight ahead. And it was the winter, and it was very cold, and I had my hat pulled down over my ears, and I just sort of didn't make eye contact, and I just stared straight ahead, and I was holding my copy of The Economist. And then when he was kept saying, "I'm going to kick you in the face," I'm going to kick you in the face. And then of course he wheels up to kick me in the face, and I like raise up both my hands and my copy of the economist and i like block the kick away from my face with the economist <laughs> magazine uh, this this bought several more years of subscribing to the economist which uh of course i eventually stopped reading and then stopped receiving years later uh but uh but but then i mean i turned out okay several people came to help me um you know we subdued him i did have to go to his trial but i didn't have to testify because he pled out uh, but it was a scary situation, I suppose. But like, then, those are my, yes, and, then, and then everyone was like, wow, you, you must be like, uh, educated and successful and interesting. Cause you're carrying a copy of the economist around on, on the train. Uh, look at right? a nice, <laughs> li- like a he, nice li- neoliberal guy. What do you get kicked in the face for? I, I, will, I will actually say that, uh, that, um, wow, you're really devoted to laissez-faire economics. Aren't you? <laughs> it was, a, it was a real trifecta because it was, there were three guys who held this guy down for the like 15 minutes that it took the MBTA police to like walk down the stairs and come, come get us because they, we were at the bottom of one of the biggest staircases in new England, which I think you could probably guess which one it was, what it is. Um, but uh, but it was me who was, of course, like reading The Economist. And then the guy who had been sitting across from me, who was in the Canadian Home Guard. So I don't I don't think I don't know whether it's like National Guard, but he was like in the Canadian military, but not the kind that would get deployed. And he was visiting and he was having brunch with his ex-girlfriend. And so it was him and his ex-girlfriend had like just either were on their way to brunch or leaving brunch and were kind of like awkwardly sitting next to each other on the train. And so like 
when this guy attacked me, I think they really welcomed the opportunity to like not be sitting next to each other anymore. <laughs> and so the woman immediately gets up and runs to the emergency uh, radio thing. And the guy comes over and helps me hold the guy down. Uh, well, no, he doesn't help me hold the guy down. He helps. He helps to sort of like deal with the guy. Uh, and then the third guy comes in who is seated all the way over at the other end of the train and he and the car and he gets up and he just runs hard, full force towards us and tackles the guy. Right. And, and that's when the Canadian guy gets down and pins him down. And then I, he tells me where to hold him. And I hold the guy, too. Um, and so the third guy, uh, when we were getting up. Uh, you know, he looked at me and the police were there and he's looked at me and he's like, can you go, can you talk to the police? I, I can't talk to the police. <laughs> and it was like, dude, man, no problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got this. Like you were never here. Right. <laughs> like that kind of thing. <laughs> so there was some sort of like edge of the law vigilante. It might have been Batman if Batman had a big red beard. Uh, <laughs> that, that might have helped me in that moment. But The Economist magazine was present. Uh, and I guess I bring it up because I, re I remember moments where magazines were present as physical objects. Right. Like, uh, it's a hell of a story difference. about a, about a magazine. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like that's a, that's a chapter of this American life or something like that. You gotta, you gotta d make the circular structure a little more. You gotta tie it into the economist or something like that. Like, you know, oh, I was yeah. going, I was going to my job in the financial sector or something like that. Or like, uh, you know, some observation about the economist or about like the, you know, rational and irrational, you know, homo economicus yeah. or like Davos man or something like that. Like, uh, and and then tie it tie it all in, and then you have a like you have just an incredible uh, moth uh, story, you know. Like uh, I you suppose, could, yeah. You I was on you'd, my you'd, way. You'd, you'd win all the story slams with that. <laughs> I was on my way from a yoga class that I was going to with someone that I met on the day that Obama was elected. No, that's not. I'm, I'm like conflating four different things. But yeah, no. I'll, I, I'm sure I'll contact the moth, and we'll just get that started right away. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, magazines are a product of cheap advertising, right? That's what made them available and cheap to people in large numbers was like the, the advertising model. Right. And, and it's the advertising model ending that changed the magazine. Um, and what makes things like the newspaper so expensive now because the the advertising is left. Right. But in that way, it's kind of the same. Cause it was like the magazine, the cheap magazine supplied to something else because of, you know, the economy changing and and like dynamics of what costs things changing and disruption and stuff. And now now it's been disrupted and been replaced. But the thing that feels to me most different is just the physical presence of the magazine, like like sitting at my uh, family computer, you know, um, working on something for school and having the recycling be down by my feet. Right. Like so we had this little mm. white metal bracket device thing uh, where we would stack the newspapers and the magazines, which had which were a separate category, because back then we were we would separate our recycling. Right. We'd have the bottles and cans. I used to have to go out and, and we would crush the cans because the cans had to be separated and crushed. And then we had the bottles and then we had the magazines and newspapers, which I'd have to tie up, which I learned how to do in the scouts, which was why I had Boys Life magazine. Um, but I remember that I would be sitting there. You know, working on something, and of course, there would be the smell, because the other thing the magazines had was smell, mm. right? Um, and in particular, there would be catalogs that had perfume samples, because there were many women who lived in my home, right? Like, and so you'd be like, I'd be like working. I looked down, and like Stephanie Seymour would be like poking out from under a grocery bag, right? Like, uh, that, and that the sort of, sa of saucy minx. 
and then and then like okay and then like three issues of sports illustrated for is for kids i guess it would be for adults at that point in my life um but just like the presence of the magazines there and then later when i think about it as the as you start stop reading them they just would pile up right and you said that about your new yorker your pile of unread new yorkers like i still get one or one or two magazines and i never read them and they pile up Yep. You know, if I leave them anywhere, they're nothing but clutter. And I, it makes me wonder how they ever were anything but, you know, like how was a magazine ever not clutter? Part of it, I wonder, is like, well, I'm getting so many more paper bags and boxes and stuff from things being shipped that I didn't used to get. Um, part of it is that there's just it feels like there's just voluminous junk mail and all the mail is junk all the time. Um, that might be part of it. I don't know. But I don't know why magazines seem like so much more of a presence in physical space now than they did back when there were many more of them and when people with a straight face would offer to sell you like 10 subscriptions like at once as if there was any possible way i was going to read 10 magazines yeah that was a like um, a that was a like a, a sports team fundraiser thing or like a school yeah. band fundraiser thing right like yeah. they would sell subscriptions and like chocolate bars or something like that Is yeah that- oh yeah i did that one yeah definitely it, you might have won, think- you, you might have read 10 magazines you know before your phone you you never know you know Maybe if I had been an adult, uh, you know, and had not had schoolwork to also do. I mean, the problem with the problem with the New Yorker, Pete, is that they give it to they they send it to you every week, and it contains something like three hundred thousand words or whatever. You know, like it's you know, when when do I have time to read at that uh, at that at that level? I mean, I no, I still do get the New Yorker, like because every now and again you get a New Yorker that's that's just like the perfect issue. Of a magazine. I mean, it's interesting. I, the, the word the word magazine um, comes from an uh, an uh, Arabic word which meant storehouse, and so uh, I guess it got brought into Italian, probably like trade. Uh, brought it into to Italian in the fifteenth or sixteenth centuries, um, and it meant storehouse, a warehouse, a uh, a depot, um, a store of goods, or uh, a store of military ammunition. Um, and then uh, became, you know, meaning a, a cartridge chamber in a in a firearm um, in the 19th century. But the uh, the but in in that sense, it's a storehouse. It's a storehouse of ammunition, right? Like it's just a, a small one uh, that that you know clips into a, clips into a rifle or a repeating rifle or something like that. Um, and so you can see how like a storehouse is uh what a printed magazine is it's a storehouse of sort of miscellaneous writings it's a compendium uh sort of and in that sense it's it's a, a magazine as opposed to like a, a single story or a you know which was like what a a a, a roman a, a roman right a, a romance um or a, a group of poems which was generally like a pose, posy uh that is to say a bouquet of flowers each poem a flower and the the um the the group given as bouquet uh this this medium of a, of a, you know a bunch of different stories uh together a bunch of you know miscellaneous writings that that was a, a heteroglossia that might have been like might have contained like a you know an account of like a social 
happening. It might have contained a a short story or like a serialized novel. It might have contained pieces of of reporting or what we might think of more as reporting now. Um, this was a, a storehouse. Uh, uh, apparently, the first one is Gentleman's Magazine. I'm just reading this off a page on the internet in 1731, um, and. Uh, uh, so it, the the magazine is figuratively a storehouse, and also um, there were uh, military printed magazines, um, you know, which were lists, catalogs of of military stores. Uh, each a magazine and the the catalog, I, I suppose, a magazine, the magazine of magazines, or something like that. So it's the it's the it's the heteroglossia. Um, that makes a, a magazine a magazine, right? It's a connection, a collection of different writers of sort of different formats, um, different genres, even, and that like uh, that is the the uh, the kind of the the fundamental characteristic. So, uh, so this is what I mean. I I think distinguishes it in my in my mind from a blog, where the the sort of y- y- thing about a blog was that it was unified, right? It was not not uh, a compendium of, of miscellaneous writings. It was a, the, sort of more like a journal, more like a single, more like a column uh, in, in a newspaper written by one columnist over and over and over and over. Um, the, the sort of early blogs uh, where they were really sort of collections of observations or collections of personal writings or, or you know, kind of like what memoir type of type of stuff, right? That that's that's sort of a different a different thing. And so like I think you have to you have to distinguish a site like I don't I don't know why uh Deuce written by the late Heather Heather Armstrong uh is is on my mind. I don't know why that's the maybe because it was so extremely voicey and so so extremely personal. Um idiosyncratically personal. And and then something like overthinking it, like we were we were almost a decade later uh but we or you know um we were more a magazine when we started writing writing articles because they were of well i mean they were all sort of media criticism but they were they were written by different writers with different voices and kind of different different um different concerns and like i you know i don't know i get i i feel like now uh now it, it's interesting like w- would you consider your your social media feeds of various kinds to be a magazine, right? Like there's something, there's something, they're, they're made up of different voices of different genres in a sense, right? Written by different editorial perspectives, uh, different aims, different projects editorially, but something about the format, right? It, is homogenizing, right? Like exercises a kind of homogenizing uh, force, a wash over what might otherwise be be very different. And also because there is a a sort of signaling function, there is kind of a status function to to social media that also sort of exerts a, a homogenizing force, whereas you would you would not expect that. Um, well, I guess, I guess it happens in like, so in, in movements in like artistic movements or critical movements or something like that, where people kind of start to, to coalesce behind the big, the big personalities in the movement and everybody starts to sound like them, but it, I don't know, it happens in, in so much faster. Mark, I saw you come off mute. Do do you think your, your social media feeds are, are a magazine? No, 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 but let's talk about why. 
Um, crucially, uh, the social media feed has no beginning and no end. Hmm. Um, right. You know, the, the magazine, the storehouse metaphor, as you were describing before, was um, was a good one and, and resonates. and makes a lot of sense. And it speaks again you know, to the obvious thing that we all know. Now, the finite uh, nature or the um, material nature of, of publishing as well as before and then the infinite nature of publishing as it is now, um, again, with all of its pros and cons. Right. Um, I, I wanted to drill in a little bit about the kind of the homogenizing nature of uh of content now versus uh, how it was when we get mag- when we had magazines um and maybe it's context context collapse or maybe more generally it's just the um the relentless homogenizing nature of delivering written content to phones on the internet right where like you know the screens are small they're certainly smaller than they were on a, on a magazine and also I, I think seo optimization has a role to play in this as well too where websites kind of look the same there's mm-hmm. not a lot of room to differentiate where magazines had uh, ample opportunity to do so, right? Because they needed to differentiate um, on the newsstand, on the cover in particular, um, to telegraph what what the differences were between publications and grab grab attention. Again, go back to the the bright yellow border of the National Geographic magazine. Um, It was just a distinct part of the brand. And you just like, you you can't have that equivalent thing on the internet, um, even you know, like the, the notion of a cover of a magazine, even is like practically just gone, right? You know, especially this this idea of a newsstand as well, right? You know, like there's nothing on your phone when you pick it up that kind of replicates that. And remember, also, it's by the way, this is a good opportunity to take a little divergence when like Apple, uh, in particular, was trying real hard to replicate that metaphor on the iPad, in particular, yeah, where you would pick an app and then it would show you um, basically a skeuomorphic newsstand. Right. And it had the covers and you would click into it and you just flip through and read a magazine as if it were like 1996 or something like that, which is in retrospect, wild and ridiculous. And of course, that was going to fail with page turning animations a lot. Yeah. Of the time. Yeah. But this, you know, in the late uh, in, in the what around 2010 or so, like this was an idea that had a lot of currency and, and it wasn't just Apple trying to do this. Uh, other um, publications and app makers and things like that were really um, committed to that metaphor. And that is just beyond dead <laughs> at this point. Well, that's um, I mean, Mark. It's, it's sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's really interesting. Like the difference between TV Guide and Ro- Wired or National Geographic or Rolling Stone, which was oversized, right? Like those are very tactically different things. Mm-hmm. Um, to you know, I was in in the '90s. I was in a little bit into like zines, right? Into like ultra low run kind of personal publications. Uh, that were Xeroxed, right? Like often with like misappropriated Xeroxing from like someone's dumb office job, like, and, <laughs> and then set, you know, sent around, you know, send a self-addressed stamped envelope type of, you know, type of distribution or very often at, at like coffee houses, you know, coffee houses like the coffee house in So I Married an Axe Murderer, which was a place, you know, a, you know, sort of a fun, safe place to hang out as a young teenager, right? Like that, that, um, you know, I, w- I was into that kind of stuff. And and now those zines, right, would be delivered on the same phone that delivers the like the high quality video and, and audio of the of the major publications. Right. Like it's yep. it's it's sort of impossible to be grimy. It's impossible to be crappy <laughs> anymore. And that is an interesting that is an interesting kind of leveling off an interesting kind of homogenizing effect of the thing. Anyway, Mark, I didn't mean to to to. Uh, derail you there, but it is. Um, no, it is you, I think you covered the the other part that I wanted to double click on. I mean, it was what you mentioned before? Was it like social signaling? 
Yeah. Um, and the power to magazine hat. That's basically what that, right? The, the, the griminess or the lack thereof. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It made me think of, um, so bear with me, a bit of a stretch of a comparison here, but to build on what Mark is talking about with regards to these things looking different from each other uh, and also the skeuomorphism, right? Uh, which I feel like is important about why it feels like something is being lost, even if it maybe isn't. Uh, or let me rephrase, even if we've already moved on, you know, I haven't read an episode, an issue even. I don't even want to call it an episode of Sports Illustrated in many years. Uh, so for me to mourn it going away now, I've never read Pitchfork. So for me to mourn it going away is kind of inappropriate. But we've talked about the way that memory intersects with the form of the magazine. You know, the the, I, the aspects of a magazine are dictated or influenced rather by the circumstances of the production of the magazine and the things that are motivating it and the things that are have worked or have not worked for other magazines. It's it's not a it's it's a design, yes, but it's a design that's born out of a lot of experimentation and a lot of organic learning about kind of what works, right? You've got the you don't have a cover page because you have a universal rule that says people love cover pages. You know, you have a cover page because you know you're selling these things on these vertical walls and you want it to grab people's attention, I guess, right? Like that's a big reason. You know, it's gonna be in a stack of mail and you want people to pick it up, but also just like you want to out there you know you want it to be if it's at the the counter at the grocery store right like thus why tv guy doesn't have to have as big a splashy a cover as as uh popular mechanics which would always have a jet on it or something because like tv guide you would just get you know like yes you could see it at the grocery store but it was with the small ones so it's like oh i know what i'm getting like i'm not i'm not like oh man you know it's alf i gotta get the tv guide this week um but uh but like the like even the stuff like the pacing of the magazine where you'd have the kind of fun article on the back page and you'd have sort of big articles in the middle and they would be interspersed with with the big full page ads um mm. and uh and 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 all that stuff is just about you know the advertisers getting their content in the ad, in the magazine and also like how you build the different segments and how you flush out the magazine to meet your publishing timeline which is also dictated by your printing timeline right and so, and so like there's a lot of different things that are very specific to the process of making and selling a magazine that end up being part of the form of the magazine and then when you move on from that when you're no longer, you no longer have to print it. You're no longer selling it in a newsstand. You know, you're no longer even really putting it together only once a month. You're sort of continuously putting it together, or you're, or you're just contracting it out and you're just buying pieces from people. You the, the the pressures to make it look like a magazine become much less. But still, there's something about the physical object of a of a of a magazine of this sort. It was around for a while. It was around for a long time. And I think if you lived through that era like we did. Uh, you know, which I guess is now past where where this was sort of a, a thing. This was a noumenon, right? Like we would have believed that there was a platonic form of a magazine that existed on some level of consideration or contemplation. It reminds me, I was watching a um a documentary. I was actually watching one of your favorite kinds of videos, Matthew, which was a reaction video. I was watching a video. Wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> 
Uh, it's my favorite in the sense in the sense of uh, in, in the sense, the sense that I'm of, a great indie rock official. Yeah, the great right, reaction yeah, videos are your favorite kind of uh, video. Yeah, no, I don't uh, like a reaction video. I like a stoicism video. It's where uh, uh, the, the you watch video on a green screen behind the the Twitch streamer and they just stare into the camera <laughs> blankly. This, this is probably more accurate to refer to it as an annotation video because this was. Um, I don't know. You guys are probably not familiar with Tasteless and Artosis, I would guess. Uh, they are some of the original esports commentators and casters. They started on the, on the StarCraft scene many years ago. Um, and uh, they've since finally returned. It's funny that Tasteless and Artosis returned from Korea before uh, Sports Illustrated stopped being Sports Illustrated or before Pitchfork stopped publishing. But it was, it was Tasteless uh, doing a, a sort of annotated watch of a documentary about the history of the uh, of the Overwatch League, which was the attempt by a lot of investors who were also associated with professional sports to start a league for professional esports. And they did a very similar thing to what Mark is describing with Apple and magazines, where they tried to build out a model that resembled football. So it's like, or American football in this case, because Robert Kraft was involved personally, the owner of the Patriots. And uh, and so it's like, okay, there's a team in each city. And the idea is that, okay, you're going to be a fan of your city's team at playing Overwatch, and you're going to go to the arena, and you're going to watch the games, right? You're going to buy a ticket to go watch Overwatch at an arena in your city and root for the people from your city, not the players that you know are like, right? Um, and, and that, you know, the prices for the tickets and the prices for the food are all going to be dictated by the economics of, of the, you know, something like the NFL. You'd have a league with minimum salaries and kind of negotiated salaries. You would hope at some point to put in a salary cap. All of these things that are that are to make it feel like a legitimate sport and that felt sustainable because the capital was flowing in, right? People were, were buying it up. Um, you probably could have read about all this in The Economist at one point if you wanted. I think that there's a rough intersection. I don't know if I was still subscribed to The Economist while this was happening. But the point being that this did not succeed because the reasons that you would watch someone play a video game are very different from the reasons that you would watch them play a sport. Uh, and in particular, your geographic relationship with people is different. Uh, you know, the, the, the game does not take place on a field that exists in a place, right? It takes place, it can take place online. It can place on a local area network. Sure. But like, um, and also, uh, the the economics and the social organization around video gaming had already coalesced and has continued to coalesce more around countries and languages and less around cities and communities. Uh, you know, it's not like, oh, man, I really hope to represent my my town someday in, uh, you know, in 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 uh, I want to pick what's the, like the funniest esport you can get involved in, like speed running Arkanoid at Games Done Quick. Uh, I was just looking at one of those. That was actually looked really impressive. Uh, speed running Arkanoid is pretty serious. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like um, what? Like, I guess Overwatch is the funniest one <laughs> because of what happened. But yeah, like I don't want to represent my town in Overwatch. Right. Like, you know, and I've talked a little bit about how I follow Tekken relatively closely these days, you know, and it's been a big deal that Pakistan has been on the map for Tekken. It's not what city in Pakistan they're from. <laughs> like, it's the whole freaking country of hundreds of millions of people. Right? Like, uh, and there's like this one guy who's from Pakistan who's really great. And he has a bunch of other people from Pakistan who are really great. And they put Pakistan on the map. Um, and it's not like it's not like that guy has to move to Detroit so that he can play against Cleveland. <laughs> right. Like, that's not how that works. But. 
but yeah, creating a mag, creating an online experience that has splash pages and physically turned page animations and cover pages because it feels like a magazine uh, is is misattributing the existence of the forms of the magazine to a thought that they are beautiful intrinsically, right? Or or like a cultural object. I guess you're trying to overcome people's reluctance to switch to a new medium, but there is no reluctance. They've switched. <laughs> they continue yeah. to switch, right? Right, right. Um, they're already the fact that you have to design this this simulacrum means that like they're already on the new medium, right? They're not in the yeah. old the the old medium. It it is interesting and, and it sort of betrays a, a you know, a, a sort of paucity of ambition or, or maybe a, a kind of like impoverished imagination, uh, among all of us for, for how we make these things by kind of making them reproduce these forms. I, you know, Pete, I, I see from time to time, like Generation Z entertainments, like I stumble across it on YouTube. Um, it's, it's not what I want. It's not what I want the algorithm to give to me, but the kind of, you know, this sort of like maximalist, highly edited, you know, uh, multi-layered like every frame extremely busy um sort of uh sort of thing that that's created by by people who are digital digital natives um and it it uh it gets to gets to like it gets me thinking that like this is this is kind of a work for the medium that's made by people who are kind of native to the medium who's who think in terms of this medium rather than thinking of like referencing uh, the medium to somebody else, but it's, it is extremely, um, I don't know. It's extremely, uh, weird. I, I, I find it like very, very alienating. Like, I, you know, I don't know, Mark, you have, you, you, Pete, maybe your kids are, are too young. Uh, Mark, have you seen Skibbity toilet? Like, is that, is that a thing? I, I, I have a friend whose kids watch that. Is that a thing? I, I, ha- your- I, I haven't. No, but, but when you were talking about, um, uh, media that uh, reflects that digital native aesthetic. Two things came to mind, and feel free to disagree or, or, or not on these. Uh, the one is the Mitchells versus the Machines, oddly enough, which okay. you talked about a few years ago, uh, which I enjoyed, and I think you guys may be a little less taken with it. And the other one is the most recent Spider-Man animated movies, uh, Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse. Um, agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, Into the Spider-Verse more for me because like part of the part of the thing was the kind of the the mashing of visual styles which kind of gave the narrative another another dimension, but it was like very it was very highly referential. It was very kind of remixed uh in its aesthetic and I I would I would kind of put that. I mean, I, I honestly I'm too old to to really be um, capable of of commenting on it with any any kind of you know uh, fluency, but the the uh, it seems to me that the kind of the aspect of remixing is one of the one of the things. The aspect of of like very uh, foregrounding the remixing uh, is one of the things that that distinguishes this this particular uh, this particular you know new digital native yeah. thing. To 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 loop this all together to connect some of our references, Skibbity Toilet is made on Source which is the animator that comes from Valve, right? Which I don't know whether it's a direct descendant of Gary's mod or not. Probably not. Um, uh, maybe, but uh, yeah, it's probably actually an it's official a, thing that's doing with Gary's mod. It's a video game thing. engine, right? Like yeah, yeah, Half-Life yeah. 2. Is yeah, well, and I was also going to say Anti-Fortress 2, which of course 
if you do watch the documentary about Overwatch, the first thing they tell you is that Overwatch was a new game and was doing a new thing. It wasn't. It was a copy of Team Fortress 2. I'm just putting it out there. It was total ripoff. Team Fortress 2 is great. Never mind. Uh, Team Fortress 2 was always the future, and we all just didn't realize it. Um, and and that's all I have to. There should have been a magazine for it. It would have been great. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um. Uh, I, I think I've, the first time I felt that way, Matt, was probably deep fried memes became a thing. Do you remember that? Have you ever guys ever seen any deep fried memes? Not As really. Says the old man. Okay, it's like um, well, it's what, when, are, what are these? What are these memes? And why are they deep fried? I my <laughs> my doctor says I can't have anything deep fried because my heart, I my men's health told me that I might have a heart attack. Oh, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I think I think. Uh, um, you're, you're basically like you're, you're creating compression artifacts is what you do. It's like you like you're trying to create the impression that the meme has been shared a bunch of times by garbling the image through the creation of compression artifacts. Oh, I see. Uh, and this was like a visual style that was particularly popular at some point years ago. And that was, I think, the first time when I realized that. The word I want to use is form factor, but that's not the right word because they're not physical objects. But I just when I really and also I don't want to use the word design because it's not like this sort of thing is created on purpose. But there is this emergent relationship with the various pressures that are occurring within the art making process. And of course, then people find inspiration from the pressures and then that becomes design. Um, and, and I think in the sort of, uh, the molting, uh, you know, the sort of like shedding of the skin of the magazine, uh, and the sort of mourning for the magazine, it feels, and, and sort of looking at other examples of other sorts of forms like this that have come and gone since it's kind of funny. Like you say that this is the biggest upheaval. I mean, I can think of times that were bigger upheavals, but it was sort of like one big upheaval that lasted for a really long time. Right? I think there was one year where all of these different newsrooms all laid off tons and tons and tons of people. All of these different you know, local newspapers all kind of shuttered all at the same time or all sold themselves off to the same companies all at the same time. Or a clear channel with the radio stations, which is going way, 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 way back. But um, even even before you get to that point, when you're seeing new sets of pressures create new points of inspiration for new sorts of designs that then become so familiar that the familiarity itself creates an and I don't want to use the inertia because we don't want to be pre-Newtonian about this, right? Like, uh, but like that just cre- the 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 familiarity with the design that's emerged from the pressures that are exerted upon it by the environment then becomes. A, uh, uh, a, a a reason not to change, right? A thing that you try to aspire to because the familiarity then kind of eases purchase and keeps things comfortable. Uh, but then things do move on because the forms change and the medium changes. Um, and, and then you arrive at kind of new local maxima. Um, I mean, I guess the idea is that the, the magazine was a local maximum and it was a big one and it lasted for a long time. Um, and... Uh, like a lot of things, you know, it's um, it's it's you know, when you look back historically, it's kind of it kind of 
tells you that education does you a bit of disservice by happening to you so young because you're like, oh, like, why should I care about sonnets? Why should I care about, you know, like the Victorian novel and how Dickens had to write it for serialization? Like, why should I care about all this stuff? Because it's all led up to now. So if I just understand now, I'm good. And it's like, nope. (laughs) If you understand now, you're going to be fine now. But in 20 years, you're going to need some perspective, right? Which is that like, you know, this too shall pass. And at some point, this will all, this what you're looking at now will be, Dickensian novels coming out in a serialized manner, uh, and, and it will help to be able to understand them from the context of something that emerged from its condition, uh, situation, and then also from the inspiration and work of people who created it. Um, you know, who is the who are the people who made magazines what they were uh, for so many years, um, and I guess still continue. I mean, I don't know. I still do read sometimes magazines. Um, I mean, I'm not going to talk about how my job has to do with certain magazines sometimes, but like, I don't want to bash them. I think that magazines still have a place, uh, but yeah, you they, know, have a, they have a place in the, the pile on your bookshelves or on the, the end table next to your couch. Well, they have a, you're, you're joking, but also they have, because they have a place on tables. It's kind of funny, right? That's like the last <laughs> place because a lot of like, look, you're talking about trade publications. Like they'll have a place on a table in an office. Oh, now people don't go to offices anymore. Now there's no trade publication, but now people are kind of being forced to go back to offices. So maybe there'll be a place to put the trade publication again where people will have to pick it up and look at it, or at least where what you put on the cover of it is going to matter to people. But even then, that's going to be different than why you put other things on the cover, different form factor, you know, different, uh, different influences, different points of inspiration. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess. I guess, well, I, I think it's appropriate that on the 16th birthday of Overthinking It, we have a podcast about how changes in the media landscape make us feel old, right? Make well, us- the, the main thing, the main advice is never borrow any money and never get acquired and no one can ever force you to close. <laughs> That's really the Overthinking It lesson is that if we want to do this thing forever, you can't make any money doing it. You can't incur any liability, which means you can't really, you know, make your living doing it. <laughs> So like you can't you can't let anyone else help you. <laughs> you have to do it all yourself. And then, I do. Uh, I, I mean, I did read. Sorry, this is I'm, I'm yeah. hijacking, but like this is uh, I did read some like um, uh, first person you know accounts of people's times at, at Pitchfork and stuff like that. Pitchfork I think paid like ten dollars for a record review. Uh, and we paid more than that for articles <laughs> when we had articles that we were, you know, commissioning internally oh, yeah. from ourselves and from other people, uh, other people on the website. We we paid enough that I had to send y'all ten ninety nines a lot of years. So like this, you know, I to, in a way. <laughs> We were more successful than Pitchfork. Uh, <laughs> certainly longer, longer lived as as an independent uh, concern. And so I guess yeah, there's there's uh, a, a, neither a borrower nor a lender be, which is our wisdom, but not wisdom that you would read in the Economist. All right, thanks very much for listening <laughs> to the Overthinking of Podcast. Uh, thanks to to Pete and to Mark for podcasting uh, with us and and taking this this uh, sort of a trip down memory lane to commemorate the 16th sixteenth uh, anniversary of the site, the 16th birthday. Uh, thanks, everyone, uh, for uh, hopping in on the Discord. Uh, you can send me an email at podcastoverthinking.com if you want an invite to, to the Discord. Um, someone, I, I'm glad I was watching the, uh, I'm glad I was watching the comments because someone uh, sent sent a comment to <laughs> to an old, uh, to an old article on the on the thing about like, hey, can I get on the Discord? And I'm, I'm glad I have a feed of the comments <laughs> via RSS that, that shows up because no one uses 
is the comments anymore. It's hard to keep the AI bots at bay uh, with, you know, spam links to like, you know, I don't know, import pharmacy sites or something like that. Like, like, uh, like uh, magazine advertisements <laughs> have all become, you know, a lot lower rent uh, over time. So, so come on, join us, uh, join us on the discord or join us next week uh, for the overthinking a podcast. We'll be, we'll be back then. Or you can join us on the web uh, for some old articles that we paid good money for yes. at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve this you is know, the part of the podcast where it's a bunch of ads like in the old boys life magazines what's sort of, what are we gonna get there um a switchblade oh yeah a so x-ray gla- x-ray glasses x-ray glasses yeah <laughs> always always like tantalizingly advertised with the with the like the silhouette of a woman <laughs> <That> was- <laughs> nothing but class boys life nothing but class <laughs>